Hello, and welcome to the VJ Oncology podcast. We're a multimedia channel working to bring you the cutting-edge news in oncology research. Today we'll be discussing the current hot topics in oncology, summing up themes from the most recent oncology conferences in preparation for ESMO 2018. We'll be covering cancer screening, the rise of precision medicine, biomarkers, and immunotherapy, including CAR T-cells. Our first speaker is discussing a contentious subject at the moment, lung cancer screening. Here's Neil Navani at BTOG 2018. So I chair the early diagnosis subgroup of the National Cancer Research uh, Institute, and our remit is to develop um, new and better trials for the early detection of lung cancer. The, the early detection field is really dominated by the screening agenda in the UK and internationally. And many countries in the world have started to implement screening programs, notably, of course, the US, uh, where we're, we're seeing very interesting data coming out in the last couple of years about um, the uptake of screening and the impact uh, at the cold face of uh, what screening for lung cancer can have. In the UK, we're not in a position yet uh, where we're implementing lung cancer screening, and we're waiting for uh, further results from the European Nelson randomised trial, which will hopefully inform um, uh, whether we start a screening programme in the UK. Nevertheless, the focus of the, um, uh, of the session is to refine how we might uh, uh, a screening programme. So who do we screen? How do we engage with them as a population and bring them into screening programmes? And really importantly, how we um, it also implements smoking cessation programs into uh, uh, lung cancer screening because the evidence is that in including smoking cessation in lung cancer screening gives us uh, by far the best outcomes. While screening is a great way of identifying early disease, the majority of current research is focused on how to improve treatments themselves. Personalised medicine is receiving increasing attention across the board in oncology. In this next clip from ASCO 2018, Wolfgang Wick discusses a highly personalised clinical trial which targeted glioblastomas with individualised vaccines with promising results. GAFVAC um, was a trial executed by a big European consortium. So we planned for a very personalised vaccine approach for glioblastoma patients introduced into newly um, diagnosed patients in the first-line treatment. So, it was a treatment consisting of two vaccines. One vaccine was um, according to the expression profile of um, the patient's individual tumor compared to other normal tissues, but also compared to a reference set of glioblastoma patients to make it a very specific um, approach against that specific tumor. And about seven of those um, peptides were selected according to expression selectivity of expression, immunogenicity, and also pre-existing immunogenicity in the blood of patients. The APVAC2 was composed of peptides that were manufactured from mutated antigens. So we did a next generation sequencing from um, the patient's tumor, um, looked for specific mutations for predicted immunogenic mutations, tried to find the mutated um, ligands with a mass spectrometry, and then also the prediction analysis for um, the most powerful peptides that could be introduced. So we had um, a, a median of two peptides selected for each patient. Patients would undergo normal radiochemotherapy and then in the maintenance treatment, first the APVAC1 for a couple of months, 
and then the Epoch 2 for another couple of months was given intradermally together with an um, adjuvant poly-ICLC Hiltonol or GMCSF to enhance the immune response. The aim of the trial was to look whether this is at all feasible because of this production process while the patient is on treatment. Second, safety, of course. And third, immunogenicity in the blood, but also, if possible, in the tumor tissue. The affect production process was really successful, so we managed to produce peptides for 15 out of 16 patients that we introduced into the trial both FVAC1 and FVAC2. The vaccination process was not really a problem. We had some safety issues with um, local dermal reactions to the um, immune stimulants, to the enhancer most likely. We had one patient where we could not tell whether enhanced brain edema was probably also due to the immune um, um, approach. And, and this is very um, 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 interesting, we had um, long-term benefiting patients. We have patients progression-free more than 30 months over the course of um, the treatment and still progression-free and alive today. And, and this was very intriguing for the validity of the approach, we could not only detect more than 50% at back two um, responses and more than 80% of like one responses in the blood, but also in the one patient where we had second surgery tissue, we would find specific T cells against the mutated antigen we vaccinated against. So this was really um, reassuring of the approach. And I think the next um, step will be to enhance the um, immune efficacy and to do a control trial. While this trial worked to tailor specific vaccines to each patient, Biomarker screening can also be used to identify the most appropriate treatment options for individual patients. This form of precision medicine is discussed in the next clip by Howard Burris at ASCO 2018 in the context of breast cancer. So this year's ASCO meeting, um, while focused on precision medicine and thinking about uh, molecular profiling and deciding how best to treat uh, smaller and smaller groups of patients, we saw some big impact uh, stories as well that came out. So personalized medicine at the other end of the spectrum, women who've had their breast cancer resected and now are deciding whether to receive adjuvant therapy. Joe Sperano presented on behalf of a number of investigators the results of the Taylor RX study, a trial that entailed thousands of women with ER positive breast cancer undergoing the Oncotype DX molecular profile. This 21 gene recurrence score in fact showed that patients who had an intermediate risk uh, score between 11 and 25, in fact, do not need to receive chemotherapy. Um, that is a huge advance in terms of better understanding the risk factors around these patients. They'll still continue to receive hormonal therapy. There remains a group of patients who need chemotherapy, but being able to avoid what seems to be an ever-growing younger population of patients from having the long-term effects of chemotherapy, very, very important. Uh, also on the breast cancer front, uh, trastuzumab. Uh, the use of trastuzumab in breast cancer has been one of the great stories over the last 20 years. Uh, talking about taking a disease that was uniformly fatal and now having those patients with greater than 90% long-term survival. That being said, a year's worth of therapy is a long time in the adjuvant setting. Uh, results from this uh, ASCO meeting showed, in fact, that six months of trastuzumab is as good as 12 months of trastuzumab. Uh, that'll be interesting to see how that uptake goes. One would think we might be driven by the data, but it's fairly well tolerated. 
the hard to change habits. Doctors will begin to think about patients that might be at greater risk to try to continue on with those uh, types of therapies. So again, that'll be an evolving story. But this duration question, one of the ways to handle costs to me is going to be how long do we have to give these therapies? I think the other way to help handle costs, which was addressed in several sessions, is treating the patients who need the therapy. The immunotherapies have been a wonderful addition. The fact is, in most disease settings, it's a specific group of patients that benefit, and we need to really define that group um, and not spend the time, money, or, or, or waste the efforts on patients who are unlikely to benefit. So moving on to immunotherapy and non-small cell lung cancer, still one of the most high volume diseases, still one of the uh, cancers where we have too much fatality. The use of pembrolizumab in the first line setting versus chemotherapy was a positive result presented at the plenary session. Uh, exciting news. Um, we're going to still continue to see pembrolizumab with chemotherapy. We're going to continue to see a, a variety of, of combinations of those sorts of approaches. But the idea that the immunotherapies are going to change how patients do with non-small cell lung cancer, uh, a critically important result. Dr. Burris begins to discuss immunotherapy at the end of his talk. This field is one receiving scrutiny in the context of individualizing treatment plans using biomarkers. Here, James Spicer, speaking from BTOG 2018, explains the pros and cons of using biomarkers like PDL1 and tumor mutational burden to inform immunotherapeutic treatment in lung cancer. The treatment landscape in, in lung cancer, as in many tumours at the moment, is um, really dominated uh, uh, in some respects by immune therapy. So, so um, in contrast to, to what I was talking about at this meeting, focusing on targeted therapies in, in tumours driven by a dominant genetic event like an EGFR mutation or a MET skipping uh, a, a mutation, for example, these are the sorts of therapies which seem uh, with the data available to be most effective against um, the, the cancers which are uh, more common, it, it, certainly in the lung clinic, that is the genetically chaotic tumours that we quite often see in smokers. Uh, and uh, at this meeting, as in every other cancer meeting in the last few years, a lot of the discussion has been dominated by these uh, immunotherapies. So, uh, the, the, for example, we had a nice talk yesterday from Fred Hirsch, who's the chief executive of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, um, who's a great supporter of BTOG and has been here many times. Uh, and uh, he, he gave us a, an overview yesterday of some of the clinical data, and particularly, given his interest as a pathologist, uh, a focus on the biomarkers and some of the problems with uh, detecting um, PDL1, one of the targets of these checkpoint inhibitors, of course, uh, and, and so the deficiencies of patient selection using only that as a biomarker. So we seem to be moving now uh, inexorably towards perhaps a slightly more complex uh, biomarker or group of biomarkers, and uh, in particular, we were discussing yesterday the tumor mutational burden, which gives us an idea of how many neoantigens might be present in a lung cancer, uh, and that in turn is probably a surrogate for, for how effective these drugs are likely to be. So that in, that in turn means that we need to think about how we measure tumor mutational burden, and that's probably not trivial outside of a trial setting, so um, whole genome sequencing or whole exome sequencing to measure TMB, as we're coming to call it for short, um, is probably not practical in the everyday clinic. So can we use, for example, a, a molecular um, genomic profile of, of a limited number of genes as a surrogate for the whole uh, genome or whole exome sequencing, which in turn is a surrogate for the actual mutational burden in the tumor. 
that, that remains to be seen and we'll have to see in future trials. According to Professor Spicer, tumor mutational burden might be a key tool in identifying which patients to target with immunotherapy. In this next clip, recorded at the 2018 Genitourinary Cancer Symposium, Thomas Powells discusses the IMVIGA211 trial and the finding that tumor mutational burden, as well as other biomarkers, are predictive of a treatment outcome in bladder cancer. Invigor 211 is a randomized phase 3 study in bladder cancer patients who have failed cisplatin-based therapy. It's a 931-patient study. The primary endpoint is overall survival. But the primary endpoint is overall survival in the biomarker-positive population. So using the SP142 biomarker, you can select pdl one positive patients. And those pdl one positive patients were included in the study, and they were either given a tezolizumab or chemotherapy. The results were unexpected in that they showed that it didn't just pick the winners for the atezolizumab, the biomarker also picked the winners for the chemotherapy. So the overall result of the trial was negative. When one looked at the ITT population, not just the biomarker positive population, but the whole population, you could see atezolizumab was associated with long-term durable remissions. And the Kaplan-Meier curve showed that atezolizumab was outperforming chemotherapy. That's in line with what we saw in the phase one and the phase two, and that's one of the reasons why the EMA and the FDA continue to uh, recommend this drug. So once we'd got the clinical results of the trial, we then wanted to further explore why the biomarker didn't work, and we did that using mutational analysis and gene expression analysis. The gene expression analysis, we looked specifically at a T-effector type signature, and that's an established, what we call TGE3, three specific genes. And we show those genes were associated with pdl one expression. And we showed also that gene expression was also picking the winners for the chemotherapy as well as the immune therapy. The second part of the analysis looked at tumor mutational burden. And that tumor mutational burden, we know bladder cancer has a high tumor mutational burden, but we also know that that tumor mutational burden correlates with response. And in this trial, we tried to see if that was associated with a predictive or a prognostic biomarker. As I said before, pdl one was associated with a good prognosis, so was TGE. But tumor mutational burden was different. It was prognostic and not predictive. And actually, that looks like, as it stands, it's exploratory, but it looks like a better biomarker. And this could easily become a new second-generation biomarker. And then when you try and combine pdl one and TGE together, using two different biomarkers in the same set, you actually can find a subgroup of patients who do extremely well. So this, in my opinion, is a step forward in biomarker discovery in this environment. And it's allowed us to take 211, have a negative biomarker, explore the ITT population, and get promising results with a new biomarker, which I think is a step in the right direction. It's clear that immunotherapies are a key area of research in oncology and that they become even more effective when informed by biomarker screening. One of the most exciting areas of immunotherapy in hemonc, and increasingly in solid tumours, is CAR T-cells. Our final clip is from Howard Burris, who gives a fascinating overview of the potential of CAR T-cell therapy in solid tumours. 
So at Sarah Cannon, we think the uh, CAR-T advance is critically important, and uh, this chimeric antigen receptor therapy, uh, we're beginning to talk about it as cellular therapy in general. So taking out uh, the patient's own cells to help engineer the immune system to attack their cancer is a remarkable advance. Uh, we've been very involved in the blood cancers. We've done a number of clinical trials with the CAR-T therapies against non-Hosel's lymphoma. Uh, now it appears that multiple myeloma is a place where there might be even a greater impact. We've had so many new therapies for myeloma for the last few years that have really made incremental advances. And now there's folks even talking about for certain populations that CAR-T therapy, in fact, might be curative. Um, you know, what, what a story to be able to be diagnosed with a disease where we're used to treating patients for years and years, uh, to define a population of patients that might be able to take a, an intense, and there's a cost factor there to be worked out, but really take this treatment and then be in remission for a long period of time. Um, these cellular therapies, these CAR type approaches are also moving into solid tumors. Uh, greater hurdles there, but we at Saracan have begun to do some solid tumor trials. We've begun to treat some patients with lung cancers and other diseases. Uh, we think the future for that's bright. We're early days, but the technology is changing. We're already seeing some uh, additional improvements there. And of interest, that sort of approach to the immune system has led to a growing number of trials with what folks are calling personalized cancer vaccines. So these PCVs, um, several companies have made investments there, take the patient's tumor out, send it off to the lab to actually be sequenced and design a vaccine specifically for the molecular makeup of your cancer. Um, I've been doing oncology now for almost 30 years. We've been talking about this. Truly amazing to actually be now offering this to patients on a clinical trial. Just shows you how far we've come. That wraps up our quick overview of the hot topics in oncology today. A big thank you to all of our speakers today and to you for listening. Join in the discussion and let us know what you think on Twitter at VJ Oncology. If you want to keep up to date with these topics and many others, with new content coming up from ESMO, BOPA and NCRI, subscribe to our oncology newsletter at vjoncology.com.